All right, let's turn again to Genesis 46 this morning. One of the greatest burdens that we will bear in this life is the loss of a loved one, especially if that loss is a child. Many years ago, a family in our church in Greenville, South Carolina, suffered such a loss. Their little boy was afflicted with brain cancer, and God took him home at the age of five years old. The church, of course, was grieved, but the parents' grief was so deep that it eventually turned them away from the Lord and into the world. Losing a child is not the way we hope and pray things will happen, and none of us, of course, want to experience bereavement in that way. But this is what Joseph went through in regard to his lost son, or excuse me, Jacob went through in regard to his lost son, Joseph. We, as the readers of the story, know what happened to Joseph in Egypt, but Jacob had assumed he was torn to pieces by wild animals. And for 22 years, he suffered that pain, which seems to have sucked the spiritual life out of him. His greatest fear now was that his youngest son, Benjamin, would uh, follow a similar fate. And that fear is what caused him to delay sending his sons down to Egypt for much needed food. But his bereavement turned into amazing joy when his sons returned with the good news that Joseph, after all, was alive and actually the second ruler of Egypt. And Jacob at first cannot believe the news, but he becomes convinced that it's so, and then he prepares himself to go down to Egypt and see his son before he dies. So Genesis 46 and 47 are the denouement of the Jacob story, the last piece of the puzzle in Joseph's plan to reconcile his family and provide for them in the land of Egypt so they won't be destroyed by the famine. And through this migration, the sovereign God is going to reunite and solidify Jacob's family. He will bless them. They'll grow there in the land of Egypt so that eventually they can return to the promised land as the chosen nation of Israel. And as Joseph saved his family and the world that day, so Jesus saves his people today and helps them to impact their world for good. Our story unveils for us a number of ways of how God's people live in and relate to the world. So as we consider these thoughts, let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for the word of God. We're thankful for these ancient stories that tell us uh, how your plan of redemption developed through time. We're thankful, Lord, for the many ways that you preserved Israel in days of difficulty and calamity and uh, uh, made sure that the Lord Jesus would come into the world centuries later and be its Savior. And as we look at how uh, Joseph and Jacob lived in the world of their time, uh, help us to realize that we need to live in our world in the same way today. So bless us as we look to your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want us to note here 
in this uh, passage is that God's people impact the world for good only as they live in peace and harmony. This has really been a theme over the last couple of messages of how Joseph seeks to bring his family back together so they actually can be a blessing to the whole world. Now, let's kind of review where we have come from because we know that prior to this famine, Jacob's family has not been in harmony and they've not been a group of people that was really highly influential in their world. Now, we go back to the beginning. You'll remember that Jacob wanted God's blessing and would do anything to get it. But instead of waiting for God to fulfill his promise, What did Jacob do? He used trickery. He used deceit to get his brother Esau's birthright and his blessing. And this is why he had to flee in the first place to Haran. He had to escape the wrath of his brother. But while he's in Haran, Jacob meets his his match, his uncle, Uh, uh, his uncle deceives him and there's constant friction between himself and Laban as they try to get the upper hand in their relationship. Then Jacob uh, finally begins to, to have his own family, but you know the story there, how his wives almost seem to be in competition with, with each other for his affection, and they're going back and forth uh, uh, trying to have more children than the other one has. So there's, there's friction going on there. Finally, he separates from Laban. They make a peace agreement, but we all know their relationship wasn't really all that peaceful. When Jacob finally comes back to Canaan, two of his sons wiped out a whole tribe of people for the infraction of one man who sinned against their sister. Then Judah later separates from his family. He marries a Canaanite woman, and two of his sons are killed by the Lord because they're so evil. Jacob's sons later hate Joseph so much that they plot together to get rid of him and sell him off to the Midianites who go to Egypt. And that's where Jacob ends up in God's providence. So Jacob's life is not exactly one of peace and harmony as we look back on it. His family had really not been a very influential people uh, testifying of the goodness and greatness of God. Hence his complaint to Pharaoh in chapter 47, verse 9, that we read earlier, that the days of his pilgrimage have been few and evil, or full of calamity, full of pain, uh, full of difficulty. That's what that word evil means here in this context. So we know that Jacob went through the, uh, the, the uh, school of hard knocks. His family needed to be reconciled. They needed to live in peace with each other and solidarity if God's going to make them into a nation that can bless the world and through whom eventually his son, the Lord Jesus, can come. But as our story has proceeded here, we see that things have begun to change and now we see the happy reunion of Jacob and Joseph. At long last, uh, uh, the family comes together. This is the last scene of their reconciliation as uh, Judah 
Uh, now is in a leadership position. He goes down. He finds out exactly where they need to go. The family then follows him to Goshen. They come to Goshen. Joseph hears about it. And notice that he quickly um, hitches up his own chariot. There doesn't seem to be any servants involved in this. So he can go meet his family in Goshen. Uh, he and his brothers have been reconciled. They've shown their changed attitude toward their father, Jacob. They're treating Benjamin in a, in a loving and kind way. Uh, and, and Joseph have forgiven them. And now they make their way down to Egypt where they can be taken care of and actually become a blessing. One of Joseph's greatest concerns has been his father. How is uh, my father? And now he finally gets to meet him after this long separation of 22 years. Jacob is uh, thankful that he can see his son. They come together. We can understand the, uh, the joy that was there as he weeps upon his father's neck. And Israel now is, is relieved. He's confident that he can die in peace instead of sorrow because he has seen the face of his son, Joseph. Now, this is the third incident where we see uh, someone's face that strongly impacted Jacob. Remember when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord at Peniel? He said there, I have seen God face to face and have been preserved. And that was a, a turning point in his spiritual life, his walk with God. Then soon after that, he reconciled with his brother Esau, and he said there to him, I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. So that was in response to Esau's gracious forgiveness of Jacob. And now when Jacob sees Joseph's face, he's ready to leave this world in peace. So the restoration of the family is now complete. They can live together in this part of Egypt in harmony, and they're going to become a nation through whom God can bless all nations of the world. His providential plan is moving forward, but it can only do so as these people determined they were going to live in peace and harmony with each other. God's people today best impact the world as they live in peace and harmony with each other. Through faith in the Lord Jesus, we have been blessed with the peace of God. We've been reconciled to God through him, and we have the peace of our sins being forgiven. And that is the foundation for us then to live in peace with other people, especially God's people. But even we're supposed to try to live in peace with everybody else as much as we possibly can. And if believers are full of envy and jealousy and strife and lack of forgiveness like these brothers had been, well, they would be no better off as far as a testimony in the world than uh, uh, Joseph's brothers in the past. They're not going to have an impact for the Lord. If the peace of God does rule in our hearts, then we'll strive to be at peace with one another, and that will uh, not hinder the impact of the gospel in the world in which we live. 
Now, the next thing that I want you to see here, beginning at verse 31, is that God's people bless the world only by being distinct from it. Joseph's plan prevented his family from being incorporated into the world's culture. And we see this in verses 31 through chapter 47 and verse 6, as he instructs his brothers how to approach Pharaoh and how to gain his favor. And he says in verse 31, first of all, he's going to go, he's going to talk to Pharaoh, and this is what he's going to say. He's going to tell them that his father's household has come down from Canaan, that they are shepherds, uh, they are herdsmen, that's their occupation. He wants Pharaoh to understand that uh, this is something that they've done uh, for many, many years. It's a family-type heritage. They are not interested in uh, being really helped by Egypt. They're capable of sustaining themselves. They are not uh, concerned about being politically involved in anything or a power grab. So he wants uh, uh, Pharaoh to realize that he will be safe by allowing this migration uh, back into the land. Furthermore, if you look down here at that last verse, Joseph says every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. We kind of wonder, well, what's that in, in there for? Because that means they, that they look unfavorably upon shepherds. And really this kind of fits in with the plan because... Uh, if you don't like a certain people, you don't have contact with them. So they're going to be separated geographically. They're also going to be separated culturally because the Egyptians think they're above this type of profession. The herdsmen aren't Egyptians. They're foreigners, so that's okay. They can stay up there in their part. We'll stay down here in our part. And what does that do? Well, it guarantees that they're not going to get together culturally and that will protect the nation of Israel. Now, that means they'll be free up there. They'll be uh, economically free. They'll be religiously free. They can worship the Lord because they won't be involved in Egypt. And they'll be culturally free as well. Now, that had not been the case in Canaan. You remember what the Shechemites wanted to do? They wanted to incorporate Israel Jacob's family into their family, they would be Canaanized if that happened. Okay? There would be no separation. Later on, uh, Judah kind of messes things up and he leaves the family. He goes to a place and marries a Canaanite woman and they have uh, two, two boys that are so evil that God kills them. So that's going to be avoided as well as they come down here to Goshen uh, which is a very fertile place in the northeastern corner of Egypt, highly suitable for grazing their flocks and their herds, and they're going to be separated from the Egyptians, and God can bless them and grow them there. Now the brothers, they follow through with Joseph's plan, his instruction in verse 40, uh, chapter 47. Uh, Joseph comes he speaks to Pharaoh. He introduces to Pharaoh five of his brothers in verse 2. 
And then Pharaoh, as as Joseph said he would, asks what their occupation is. And they answer truthfully, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. In other words, this goes back several generations. Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, and now the brothers, all of them are, are shepherds. And of course, that has significance as well. We come to the New Testament, Jesus is the great shepherd. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. So they could not have survived up there in in Canaan. And uh, uh, Joseph's plan now is working out to save them from the famine. And then they asked Pharaoh directly to give them this uh, land in Goshen, which is so suitable for their occupation and for their survival. Now, uh, Pharaoh's response to them is gracious. It's really unprecedented that he's been favorable uh, to Joseph because of the wisdom of Joseph and really kind of saving his land. And now that's going to be extended to Joseph's family out of respect for him. So in verses 5 through uh, 6, he grants their petition. He says they can live in the land of Goshen. And furthermore, he says, if any of the men are competent, they can be chief herdsmen over my livestock. So they have an elevated position there where they're really in control of Pharaoh's herds, which probably would have been quite numerous. So again, the Lord is working this out for their provision during this uh, terrible famine that's come upon the world at that time. So, uh, God's plan is working out. Then we find that Jacob blesses Pharaoh in verses 7 to 10. And this is kind of a reversal. We would think of Pharaoh as being the greater greater because he is the king, the ruler of Egypt. And Jacob is just this lowly shepherd man who's got to come to the land of Egypt uh, in order to survive. But the role is kind of reversed here because Jacob's the one who's doing the blessing. It's God's people who actually bless the land and bless the world of Pharaoh rather than the other way around. So in verse 7, Joseph brings his father Jacob and sets him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. So the first thing he does is he blesses Pharaoh. Now this word bless can allude just to a greeting. But in the Hebrew mind, and in many places in the Old Testament, it has this religious connotation, that you're extending uh, a, a blessing of a spiritual nature on someone. And it's very likely that Abraham in some way was doing this, And when he leaves the presence of Pharaoh, he also says a blessing. So this is bookended here, the blessing of Jacob upon Pharaoh, not vice versa. So this would indicate to us that Jacob is the superior in this situation because he is giving a blessing upon Pharaoh and thus really Pharaoh's people uh, that is probably showing divine favor. Now, he, when Pharaoh asks the age of Jacob, he's conveying to us the cultural view of elderly people, that when you grew to a certain age, 
uh, that was viewed as divine favor upon you, of, uh, of the God's blessing upon you. And, uh, of course, Joseph had already been a great blessing to Egypt. And now the Lord informed uh, Pharaoh through this blessing that that peaceful condition and that blessing would continue through the words of Jacob. And you remember, if we go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, God said that he would bless those who blessed Abraham and curse those who cursed Abraham. So here's an example of really a whole nation being blessed because they were kind to Pharaoh and they they were grateful to Joseph, or excuse me, kind to Jacob. They were grateful to Joseph. And so this peaceful relationship is assured and God's blessing can come upon them because of their proper attitude. We also might think it a little strange when we come to verse 9, where uh, Jacob says that his days of sojourning has not been as long as his father's, and also that the days of his pilgrimage have been few and evil. As I mentioned before, evil doesn't necessarily mean uh, bad, but when we look back at his life, we know that it was a life of hard knocks. We know there was much difficulty. One commentator kind of put it this way. Jacob, who fought his way into life, departs life just as dramatically. The life of Jacob, which has stretched over half the book of Genesis, has seen the family through moments of trust and betrayal, sterility and fertility, feast and famine, separation and reunion, and within the promise and providence of God. So God's people don't always have a perfectly smooth life. They go through bumps and they go through afflictions and they go through hard times, but God sees them through all of this as he did Jacob. And uh, we can be a blessing in the world even though we go through these difficult times and we can extend a blessing to others because of what God has done for us. Now Israel could not be a blessing to the world of that day unless they lived separate from it and distinct from it. This had not been the case previously, as we have mentioned. But it begins to develop now under Joseph's wise direction of finding them a place in the land where they can live, where they can work, where they can worship, but it's separate from the Egyptian culture. They're in the world, but they're not of it. Unfortunately, much later in the land, as the story of Israel moves forward by centuries, uh, they would adopt the pagan culture of the land, and they would lose the blessing of God and eventually the land itself. But right now, uh, their future is secured by being separate from the world. And the church cannot fully impact the world for Christ unless it stands distinct from it. We're uh, we're in the world as well, and Jesus says we're not of it. He's changed us. And unfortunately, there are those within the church today who ignore this truth. 
They think that in order to get people to come to church, we have to adopt contemporary styles of music and worship. We have to adapt to the viewpoint of the culture. So the culture begins to creep into the church and change the church rather than the church changing the culture. We're seeing this in, the, in our world today in a very obvious way. Uh, we, have to, uh, we have to water down the gospel to make it more palatable. We don't want to, uh, uh, to offend uh, by preaching about sin and the hard doctrines of, of Scripture. So if that's the way the church becomes, what good is it in the world? How does it influence the world for God? How does it impact the world? God says that we're not to love the world or the things of the world. And if we do, then the love of the Father is not in us. Jesus said that if the world hated him, then it's going to hate us. And if you're living separate from the world, sooner or later you're going to uh, run into flack because of it. Because the world doesn't agree with our morality. It doesn't agree with our righteous behavior. It doesn't agree with our worldview. And sooner or later, there's going to be a clash if we indeed are distinct and separate. But if we cave in and become more and more like the world, then we lose our impact. Now that brings us to the next point. And that's this. God's people are actively involved in saving the world like Joseph was. So we come to verse 13, which we did not read earlier. Uh, We find that Joseph was used not only to save his family, but to save the world in which he lived, and thus, of course, be a blessing to it. But now the story turns to what happened to Egypt during the remainder of the famine. And the young man who was once a slave, now saves the world and actually enslaves those who enslaved him by his goodness and wisdom. So let's take a look at this, and we're going to notice there's a stark contrast between what happened to Egypt and what happened to Israel. We're reminded of the severity of the famine. Now there was no bread in all the land. Well, bread comes from grain. The grain has been uh, stored up in Egypt. It's all gone now. For two years or more, they haven't been able to even plant grain. So the famine's very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languish because of the famine. So both Egypt and Canaan are in a bad place. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, For the grain which they bought, Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So now we've come to the place where people are spending all their money just to have food. I hope it doesn't get that way in our country. But it doesn't look good right now, does it? They're spending all their money just to survive physically. But notice what it says. Verse 15. The money fails. What happens when you don't have any more money to buy bread? When the money failed in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph. He's the one who's been in charge of storing grain. 
Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence for the money's failed? Here again comes up that theme we've seen so often. We've got to go to Egypt in order to live. We've got to go get their grain in order to survive, physically speaking. So the money's all gone. They have nothing with which to buy any more grain. So they go to Joseph to figure out what to do next. Then Joseph said, okay, give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money's gone. Okay, so now we're going to start bartering, and whatever you have as far as livestock, I'll take that, and I'll give you grain in uh, return. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle, the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock, and that lasted another year. Well, things don't change. Things don't get better. The famine's still not over. And what do they eventually do? They're losing everything. Verse 18, when that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money's gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but what? Our bodies and our land. That's all we got left. So what are we going to do now? They're willing to put themselves in servitude in order to live. Okay? And notice... This suggestion is from the people to Joseph, not the other way around. But Joseph accepts it. And again, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So again, in exchange for their lives, they're willing to give their lives everything they have to stay alive. So Joseph, in verse 20, buys all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. So we can see where Pharaoh is enriched by all of this because of his wisdom. So he's loyal to Pharaoh, but he's also making sure that the people survive because if Pharaoh's all by himself, what good is that going to be? For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them, so the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the border of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. So there was an exemption for the religious group. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households and as food for your little ones. All right, so you can understand the arrangement there. Joseph buys the land in exchange for food. Uh, They, in a sense, enslave themselves to Pharaoh. And some people think that perhaps this supports the Bible teaching slavery. However, as the story 
progresses there, it's more an arrangement of indentured service. Because the people are not just getting food, they're getting seed to plant when the famine ends, and they're getting to keep 80% of the produce, and the rest is taxed and given to Pharaoh. Now, folks, when you think that out, is that really a bad deal? You and I, if we're in the minimum tax bracket, pay 10% to the federal government. We pay uh, more than that to the state and local government. We pay property taxes. We pay sales tax. We pay gas tax. I'd be glad to just pay 20%, wouldn't you? So I think that was probably a pretty good deal that they got. And they're still able to work the land. They don't own it, but they're, uh, they're like indentured servants and they're profiting from it. And furthermore, let's look at the attitude of the people. Are they complaining? Are they saying, oh, this isn't fair, we're getting robbed, yada, yada? No, in verse 7, they said, you have saved our lives. So this was fine with them as well. Let us find favor or grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And so that's how things were sent up. Joseph made it a law of the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So they're still able to live on the land, to work the land, and they get profit from the land. And so they are uh, uh, capable of continuing sustaining life, physically speaking, and they're grateful for what Joseph has done. Now, let's think about the contrast, though, between... Egypt, the world, and God's people. Because we see God providing for them in a different fashion through Joseph. Let's back up uh, to verse 11 and 12. Now Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession of the land of Egypt in the best of the land. So, the Egyptians lose their land, but the Hebrews gain a possession. They're given a land in Egypt, and not just any old piece of property, they're given the best land for their occupation. In the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number of their families. The Egyptians sold everything they had for bread. God's people get it for nothing. They don't pay a dime. Joseph fulfills his word and provides for them. So they don't lose the land. They don't have to pay for the bread during the time of the, uh, the famine. And then if you go down to verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and they grew and they multiplied exceedingly. So again, instead of languishing, they prospered. They had possessions. They grew. They multiplied. They become so numerous over the next... Uh, many, many years, that the future Pharaoh of Exodus 
enslaves them because he's afraid they're just going to overrun the whole country of Egypt. So God used Joseph to save the world physically by providing them with bread. But he preserved Israel to save the world spiritually because from Israel will come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So it's through Israel that Jesus comes in the flesh, the church is born, and now they're involved in saving people, spiritually speaking. Jesus presented himself at one time as the bread of life who came down from heaven. He gave his life as an atonement for our sin. He said, all who come upon, uh, call upon him in faith, who spiritually receive him as the bread of their life, they'll have their sins forgiven, and they will be given eternal life in exchange. The Egyptians were willing to give all their money, all their possessions, all their land, everything they had, including their freedom, just to stay alive physically. Few people today are willing to give Jesus the time of day, let alone come to him as their Savior. And when we share the life-giving gospel, we're being like Joseph, who gave physical bread to save the people of Egypt, but we're giving them the living bread, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is, of course, of eternal value. Now, the last thing we want to note here concludes the chapter as uh, Jacob approaches his son Joseph and makes him promise not to bury him in the land of Egypt. So the final thing we see is that the hope of God's people is in his promises, not the world's prosperity. Jacob by this request, stakes his claim in the promised land, not in Egypt. Verse 28. Now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Now isn't that interesting that Joseph was in the house of Jacob the first 17 years of his life. Jacob's in the house of Joseph for the last 17 years of his life. That's the way it's supposed to be. You take care of your kids when they're little. They take care of you when you're old. That's the way God wants it. Now, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. This is the way of taking an oath back then. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he, Joseph, said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me, and he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. When the time of his passing was very near, <clears throat> Jacob makes Joseph promise, don't bury me in Egypt. In Egypt, 
bury me back in Canaan, put me in the burial place of our fathers, that's where the promised land is, that's where the promise will be fulfilled. So this demonstrates that Jacob never lost sight of God's promise to that land and all the blessings associated with it. Gone were those days of scheming and planning to get a blessing, to have a family, to accumulate possessions. God had been taking care of him the last 17 years, but his uh, eye is not on Egypt and staying there. His eye is on the land of promise, uh, not the prosperity of the world in Egypt. And like his fathers, Jacob died not having received the promise, but having seen them from afar. And like his father Isaac, his grandfather Abraham, the author of Hebrews says, he waited for the city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. So we too, like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, stake our claim on that promise. The world can offer many things, things that are earthly, things that are material, Money, possessions, lands, fame, popularity, power. But all those things pass away, and they will be worthless on the day you die. The only thing worthy of your trust and mine is confidence in Jesus Christ, the author of eternal life, who freely gives it to all who call upon him in faith. If you stake your claim in him, then on your dying day, you're going to enter the gates of the eternal city, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. No matter what you had in this life, you'll have an abiding place with God for all eternity. Now throughout this passage, we've seen the applications, so let's just kind of review them as we close. First of all, are you living in peace and harmony with God's people and everybody else that you know to the best of your ability? And if not, well, what are you going to do about it? Then are you living a life that's separate, that's distinct from the world? Or do people look at you and they see not a whole lot of difference between the way you live and the way they live, even though they don't know God? Are we involved in reaching people for the Lord Jesus Christ, saving them, not so much physically, but spiritually, as we show them the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for them. And then finally, is our hope and that promise that, it, that Jacob looked so closely to, not staking his claim on the prosperity that he often sought in this life, but the one that lasts forever and ever in eternity with God. Heavenly Father, we pray today you would help us to heed your word in these different ways. Help us as your people to live in peace and harmony with each other that the gospel may not be hindered. Help us, Lord, to live a life that's separate and distinct from the world. Lord, help us to be concerned about the souls of the lost around us and think of ways and pray for ways to reach them with the gospel. And finally, Lord, help us to stake our claim on the promise of God of eternal life in heaven with Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.